Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip answers your questions such as, where do I invest? Should I pay taxes now or later? How do I teach my kids about money and investing? Can I have more than one 401k? How can I turn my investments into income when I retire? What are some of the major risks when investing? And how do I make passive income from investing? Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. And now... Here's Philip. Alrighty, I am back with another episode, and today is a good day. The weather's going to be nice this weekend. I am going to be gardening. It's funny. I was talking to my ten-year-old, and because uh, he's like he at the age now where he is becoming too cool for school, not not literally school, but you know we were talking about uh, he he wants to have a YouTube show in the summertime, and I was like, yeah, you know, Daddy has a you know a, a podcast on the internet too. I said, maybe we could do some joint shows together. He's like, well, yeah, but maybe we could do it on um, a different channel. You know, not my channel. I'm like, oh, okay, you're too cool to, to do a show with daddy. But I was telling him, I said, hey, daddy, you can tell how daddy gets excited about the weekend and doing gardening stuff and stuff in the yard in the springtime. I used to, I used to uh, look at my dad doing that and going, man, he's like, he's like lame, right? And then you grow up and I grew up and I realized, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm excited too. It's part of life. So teaching him life lessons. You get older and you start doing stuff like your parents. But let's let's get into the show today. So I want I want to start with like the you know market view of 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 what's going on, right? And I and I like to always think in five year increments when I create a market view, which impacts how I invest. Uh, my money and how I manage Stonehill Wealth Management model portfolios, which, you know, my money are, is in a Stonehill Wealth Management model portfolio. And so 2020 was like, I've been, I've been talking to folks about, you know, the the 100 years from now, people are going to look back and you know how we, we, we measure time in, in, in AD or, or BC, AD, you know, 2020 is going to be what I call ABTC or after Bitcoin, right? Because because what happened in 2020 is the financial system after 08 was like already like leaking, right? It was on a it was dying slowly, which which every which financial systems you know die every 80 to 100 years. If you listen to my podcast episodes before, you'll I go into depth on that. But 2020 was where you were like, oh man, like this financial system went into hospice, you know, it's over. And, and so that, so that was a major, okay, the next five years, that picture changed a bit because not only I realized that, but all, a lot of the market players realized that. And so, you know, what does that look like? Well, we're in a world, we're still in a world where there's low growth, there's high amounts of debt on country and company levels. And there'll be lots of money printing to get out of the debt. And again, I won't go into that because you've I beat it to death on my podcast already. And so you got to think, okay, in that world, what are the types of assets that 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 do well, right? And the and the high money printing was the realization of what people realized last year that was going to have to happen to maintain the system, right? And so 
uh, small explanation of it. When you when you print money, right, you make the value of what the money you own go down. Let, let me give you like an example because people people so we look at the pound sterling, right? The pound sterling was created like three hundred something years ago, and the pound sterling was like basically like it was a pound a one pound sterling or one dollar pound sterling equal like a pound of silver, right? It was the same value. If you fast forward to today, I listened to a podcast earlier and to buy a pound of silver, it takes like 127, you know, English pounds to buy a pound of silver, right? So, you know, what happened? I mean, silver, silver stayed constant, like one pound of silver, that didn't change, still a pound. But how many amounts of British pounds it took to buy one pound of silver like exponentially went up because the value of the money went down over time. And so that's what happens to money like in 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 the pound and I and we and I'm using the pound sterling as an example because it's the oldest fiat currency or government backed money that we have today and it's the rest of them are like gone and have come back in some other form uh, or weren't around but that went down like a lot relative to silver and gold right and so where am I going with it why did it go down because of money printing over time right the when governments get into trouble, they make the current value of the currency worth less, so they could reduce stress on the system and pay back their debts and and and, and fake money basically. And so, twenty two thousand twenty helped us realize, okay, yeah, this is going to happen. Like these trillion dollar stimulus packages are going to have to happen uh, every year because if they don't flood money into the system, all asset prices come down. Uh, and everything breaks, right? And there's chaos in the street, right? And so they can't afford to do that. And so in that environment, you you think, okay, what, you know, what do I want to own? And let me stop for a second. When that happens, it doesn't mean like we're going to go into chaos, right? Because this, this happens every 80 to 100 years. So when we transition from the pound to the dollar 80 odd years ago, right? The, the world didn't go into chaos. It just became a new type of a system. And we, we, we did have a World War II <laughs> you know, which happened for the transition, but it was not like the end of the world type, type scenario. So so we're in the transition and the money printing is going to help the chaos, but you're like, okay, if they're printing more money, right? And I talked about this on the last podcast time and it's making the value of your money worth less. Okay, well, you don't want to sit there and just take it because it's going to make your money worth less. Like a, a visual example that I used last time was, Got a million dollars in 1980. You put a million dollars in a in a 30 year government bond, U.S. government bond. It paid you 100 grand a year. Today, let's say you still got the same million. You put it in a U.S. 30 year government bond. It paid you 20 grand a year. So the same amount of money, you still got it, but it buys you a whole lot less because they 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 made money so easy that it made the money value of your money like go down, right? And so um, at the same time, the cost of living is going up, and so. That that's no that's no good if you want to like store value, right? Because when when we work, we say, okay, we're working, we're provi- we're providing value to an organization. The organization, in exchange for us providing the value, pays us money, which is a technology invented by humans to store value. You use that to pay for things, and then whatever else is left, you want to store it for use later, right? Cash, bonds, stocks. But what happens when they when when people print money or the government prints money, it's stealing your value, right? Because it's making the value of your, in the example, your million dollars, it's buying less 
And so that's that's theft, right? And so you're like, oh, well, what do I do in, in that environment where they're printing printing money? Well, you first got to have an assumption of, okay, what's the, what is the likely, and so this goes to the five-year theme, okay, what's the likely money printing rate around the world over the next five years? Estimates are as low as 10% and some are as high as 20%, right? I think a lot of the people who are smarter than me are saying 15% a year, but let's let's just use simple math. Let's just say it's 10, right? 10% a year money printing rate. What that means is 10 years from now, the value of your money or what it can buy is, you know, rule of 72 says it takes, anyway, we use, we, we use some, some, some math tricks and you know, okay, in seven years, if my money is devaluing at 10% a year, I'm going to be able to buy half of what I can buy seven years previously, right? million dollars today, seven years from now, can likely only be able to buy 500,000 worth of goods and services if they print at 10% a year seven years from now. That sucks. Which so so you know, okay, as I'm putting away money, as I'm storing value, I need that value to grow at a level greater than ten percent a year in this example. And so then you say, Okay, I have my baseline hurdle rate of, of what I what I have to have my money work at to do that. So then you say, Okay, what what investments are likely gonna be able to do that? Well, that takes over-indebted companies off the playing field, right? Because once a company's over-indebted, they can't grow that much, right? Companies that have too much debt, they're just not going to grow that much. They have too much debt. So you want companies with low debt. What else does well? I think the since 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 you have low debt, you need a new form of leverage, right? To exp- to have exponential growth. Debt creates exponential growth, but the new form of leverage is a network. So think of Apple, right? Strong network of iPhone buyers and developers who want to develop and build stuff on top of the network. It creates exponential growth for what they can do. Facebook, right? Billions of people on the platform uh, allowed it to, to do exponential growth uh, of the business. Amazon, they don't have any stores. Well, you know, I guess they technically do have stores now. That they're test concepts, but they don't, stores aren't part of their business. They got big by connecting buyers with sellers over the internet. They created a network. And so in in, in the age of not being able to grow through debt because there's so much debt, you want to look for companies with networks, right? Low debt, strong network. The network is the new leverage. And then you want to say, okay, can they grow at a higher rate than the money printer per year? So are these companies growing at, in a 10% example, higher than 10% a year or 15% a year, right? The higher the growth rate with low debt with a network, the better. So that's kind of one category. If you're if you're investing in stocks, you want to kind of you want to check the box on those type of stocks, and that that narrows down the stock world. Then you also want to own scarce assets because in a, in, a, in an environment where people are like, okay, they woke up last year, they're going to keep printing. All right, I want to own stuff that they can't print and make more of. You know, so that's why you see art selling for crazy amounts of money. You see real estate like like in 08, real estate didn't take off immediately. After last year, real estate took back off, like between now and last year, because they're, you know, they're not making any more of it, right? So real estate has done relatively well. Bitcoin, as you guys know, has been doing well for 10 plus years and did really well last year because there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. If you were to say, what is the scarcest asset on the planet? Bitcoin. Like there's no other scarce asset because you, you literally, like gold, they can mine more of it out of the ground 
you know, real estate, we're, we're not going to live on every piece of real estate around the world, right? Even I was talking to uh, Steve, the best audio engineer in Texas before, and I was like, I was like, hey, you know, tough part about the suburbs is they don't like go back and, you know, gentrify or refix the suburbs after a period of time, right? They, they just built further out in Texas because there's so much land out here versus if you were to buy and own something close to downtown where it's limited supply of, of real estate. And so, and so Bitcoin, the way the protocol is written, only going to be 21 million. Here's how people who have money think about Bitcoin after 2020. They're like, okay, um, if over the last 80 to 100 years, New York City was the financial center of the world. So, so U.S. dollar is the base of the base reserve money for the world. New York City is the financial center, the financial center of the U.S., Right, so they're like the base hub of the world money. You're saying, okay, over the next eighty to hundred years, what is going to be the center of the universe for money moving forward? Bitcoin is a strong case, right? A lot of be, be, because of the ability to of it to not be printed, and the network effect is huge now. And you have like just look it up. You have one by one the financial centers of the universe, the billionaires in the U.S financial institutions in the U.S. that are all jumping on board, insurance companies that are all jumping on Bitcoin because they're like, yeah, this is going to be the center of the universe or it has a strong possibility for the next 80, for, for the new financial system that's being built since the one that we currently have is broken, right, and dying fast. And so they're like, it's only going to be 21 million. This is like buying prime real estate in New York in 1940, right? They're trying to buy as much as they can uh, for the new financial system that's going to be built on top of Bitcoin, and so that is how I'm looking at things over the next five years. And it influences like what I want to buy, right? How I, you know, and I preface it with, you know, you want to stay diversified. So I don't ever, you know, I'm not your financial advisor. This is not financial advice. This is how I think. But, but my point is like be diversified. But I think about this in the context of, okay, the parts of the portfolio where I'm making a, a big picture bet that has a high probability of working out. This is this is the lens that I'm looking through and thinking through currently. So we'll get into the Q and A part. I got some questions that came in that I want to answer for this part. So first question, Philip, this market is expensive and different. Where do I invest? And I'm getting that a lot from from you know wealthy clients that are just like, hey, I don't know where to put money because everything is expensive. And you know, my answer is just be diversified, right? Go go through the framework, right? I just went through so. So understand where the best opportunities are based on the big picture deal. Put some of your money there. I wouldn't recommend putting all your money there because that's just foolish. But put some of your money there uh, relative to your risk profile and your time frame. But then the other uh, the other thing is just spread your money out all over because the the rest of the stuff that's not as attractive, you don't want to, you know, you just want to spread it all out. Even, even and, and then say, okay, if this stuff doesn't earn much, let me hopefully, you know, the my big picture bet is going to take some heat off that portfolio and carry everything along with it. So the answer when everything is expensive right now is just be diversified, be very diversified. And, l- and let me give you context into what into what he meant because commercial real estate right now is expensive and super risky. U.S. stocks are expensive. Investing in emerging markets is is is, is risky because they don't respect property rights as much. So you can have some money there in the, in the diversified part, but it's not going to be a big chunk. The the other developed countries that are not U.S., Europe, Japan, like they're having 
political problems and other problems on their own. So if you think of the developed world, the U.S. is really the best. You got the emerging markets, which is China and the surrounding territories, which are going to be, you know, relatively, you know, opportunities to look at, but not bet a lot on because of the lack of property rights. Then you got the U.S. on the Western world, which great property rights, um, great system, but it's super expensive. And so that's that's the challenges. Well, man, like, you know, how you know how do I invest? That's the context of the conversation. So the answer is diversify and make sure that you have some money in the types of assets that I that I talked about in the beginning that fit in that macro bucket. Next question, Philip, should I pay taxes now or later? So this context is in the in the context of uh, if you're choosing to invest in a Roth IRA, traditional IRA. You know, my default answer is I'd much rather pay taxes now than later if I have the option because later I'm not going to want to pay it. I'm going to maybe be slowing down my career. I'm, I'm personally probably always going to be working because I love it, but maybe not, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. Maybe it's 20, 30 hours a week, right? Or maybe I don't want to work at all. Or maybe I can't work at all. And so later, I'm just like, hey, I, I, want the, I don't want to worry about taxes. I just want to, like, handicap that and know my rate will be zero or as close to zero as possible on my money uh, versus doing like a complex math of saying, oh, yeah, will taxes be, you know, higher now or later? There's no way to answer that question with any kind of probability because it's a toss up. And so I just say, you know, as much of it as you can stomach paying it now versus later, do it. But I do understand people like, well, hey, I want the deduction because whatever reason, well, cool, maybe do 50-50, right? But I don't, I think it's not wise to, if you have the opportunity to contribute to uh, a Roth type of an investment for retirement, that you shouldn't do at least some. Because I I have yet to meet a person who's retired that have said that we're not upset that all of their pre-tax money was going to be taxed when they took it out. A lot of them just didn't know. They didn't even know about the Roth IRA back before. So do some. And, you know, depending on like your plan, your circumstance, what you're looking at and talking to your financial advisor. Next question. How do I teach my kids about money and investing? So this is something I'm thinking about because I mentioned before my my kid is 10 and I've I've always talked about both of my sons, like 10 and five about money. You know, they, they, I set up an investment account. They look at it periodically. Um, We talk about it. They still don't know what I'm talking about, but we have talked about it a lot, but now I'm going to step it up a lot and and here's an idea that that I'm sharing at a at a conference that I'm speaking at for for CPAs in May, and it is about the, the the Roth IRA for your kids because a lot of people don't realize you actually can set up a Roth IRA for your kids, but it has to be with money from them working. And so I didn't until I, until I until I read it and again talk with your CPA, make sure you get it done right. But I didn't realize that you know my ten year old we can pay him for chores or pay him for doing a little work for my company around the house. And if he makes $2,000, you know, for the year, we can take that two grand and put it in a Roth IRA. And so the rule is you got the Roth IRA regular limits, but you can only put the lower of the Roth IRA limits or how much they actually like make. And you want to make sure you track it appropriately to do it right. But you can make a Roth contribution for your, for your kid. And so A, it helps them early on, like just when their brains are developing, just understand, yeah, part of what I make, I'm going to put away for the long term in this bucket. They're going to build tax-free money, and then you get to walk them through setting it up, uh, walk them through picking the investments, 
you're teaching them about investments as they're doing it. And another thing is, and this is the part that I like that I like the most. You you can even like give them a match. So for example, let's say you know your kid makes three grand for the year. You might say, hey, listen, if if you put in fifteen hundred, I'll put in fifteen hundred of my money to get you at three grand, and then you can spend the fifteen hundred on on whatever you want. But you but you get them in a habit early on of you you give them an incentive to put the money away themselves versus versus you forcing them to and and you build that habit at a very young age once they start earning their own money like it's just second nature right and they and they save money and they put it away and that's half the battle like half the battle of building wealth really not even half like 80% of the battle of building wealth is learning how to defer money and not spending it all now so i love the the, and 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 you can do this. You can do a traditional IRA for your kids too. But a, a Roth is one where I mean, you know, their tax rate is whatever, like nothing. And so th- just do the Roth because the money that goes in there comes out tax free later. And doing it at a young age, they're going to compound money at a crazy rate that's never going to be taxed after the money they put it. You know, after they put the money in there. And so that's that is my idea for teaching kids about money and investing. Next question. Philip, can I have more than one 401k? Simple answer is yes, but it depends, right? You want to, you got to check the box on a few things. So here's the rule around 401ks. The The rule is there's like an employee contribution that has a limit of how much you can contribute. And there's an employer contribution on how much you can contribute to a 401k plan. So yes, the 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 limit on the employee contribution, which I believe at this point is nineteen thousand five hundred. Check that out for yourself. I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but yeah, you 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 cannot put more than nineteen thousand five hundred dollars into four hundred one ks as a whole. So if you have ten of them, they all all contributions have to equal nineteen thousand five hundred. If you got one, nineteen thousand five hundred. So it's the rule is on the nineteen thousand five hundred. That's the that's the limit. But if you, for example, work a full time job, then you have a side business that makes money. Because again, it has to also be earned ordinary income that goes into the four hundred one k plan. But you got a side, so you got your regular job that um, you work at, and you put the nineteen thousand five hundred in there, uh, and you get the company match, which maybe gives you more money on top of that. And then you have a business that you make money from. Well, from the business, you can't do an employee contribution because you've already maxed that out, but you can do an employer contribution. And an employer contribution on a 401k plan for your business is pretty high. It's like north of 50 grand a year that you can do as a 401k plan. But again, there's there's like rules you want to make sure you follow because you got affiliated companies, um, which might count the 401k plans as one plan. And so just, you know, my goal in talking about this idea is not to get into the weeds of the details of what checks the box, but to know that to know that yeah, it's super possible. Like it's a lot of situations that make sense and that fit within the opportunity for somebody to have multiple four hundred one k plans and put quite a bit of money away into a tax advantaged, tax deferred retirement vehicle. Next question: How am I going to turn my investments into income when I retire? This is the biggest challenge, especially today, given what I just mentioned earlier about 1980 million dollars, 100 grand a year, 30 year bonds, million dollars a day, 20 grand a year, 30 year bonds, right? Which typically people will, you know, 
get more conservative as they retire. So they'll have a, a bigger portion of their money will be in fixed income type assets, which are bonds and annuities, and those are all, you know, similar return profiles um, and similar incomes. And so it's challenging in a low rate environment to to retire because it's challenging to generate a lot of income on those safer assets. So 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 how do you do it today? The real question is you're just gonna have to have more of your money in volatile assets to generate a decent income and or have more money, right? So you got two options. If you got the same pile of money as somebody who retired 30 years ago, then you, you can either, you can live on less, right? Or you can have less of your money in fixed income assets and more of your money in things like bonds or Bitcoin or real estate as a part of your portfolio to generate the income that you need. And that's just the, that's just the truth. And, and what it forces people to do is be more financially literate and understand those things better. Because some people might say, oh, Philip, but that's more risky. Not necessarily. I think it's more riskier to be in bonds right now or cash right now than it is to be in some stocks, real estate. And in my real opinion, I mean, I think Bitcoin is safer than cash. And that's a super, you know, unless you understand money and how it works, that might you might think I'm crazy, but that's not a crazy statement at all if you understand money. And so I think the the answer to this question and my next question I'm going to actually go the next question is about the different risks in investing. I'm going to go deeper onto this, but the answer to this question is you just have to be more diversified to reduce your risk. But you're going to have to put your money in more volatile assets and understand volatility is not risk, not the real risk. Volatility is is is, is up and down movement and is more uncertain. But you got to understand your risks and get more financially educated and not have as much money in things that are not going to that are going to get killed by the rising cost of living. So next question. Philip, what are some of the major risks when investing? So this is going to tie into the question that that I just uh, answered before. So here here are three major risks that people have when investing. L- loss of purchasing power, which is what I mentioned before. You know, Got a million dollars, may not buy what a million dollars could have bought 30 years ago, 10 years ago from now. It's probably going to um, be worth less because of the easy money policies of government to prop the system up. It takes away your stored value. So that's one risk is, you know, is my money outrunning the bear or is the bear outrunning me? Because if the bear outruns you, you're going to get eaten or your money will. Okay. And that's the biggest risk. That is the biggest risk. The second risk is the risk of permanent loss of your money, right? And so this is the risk that typically people are scared of. They're like, hey, if I, get, if I give the million dollars, I want to make sure my million dollars is here. I don't want to permanently lose it, right? And that risk is, is manageable through diversification. For example, if you have a portfolio of 10,000 stocks that are doing business around the world, and maybe you own some little bit of gold in there, a uh, little bit of Bitcoin, a little bit of bonds, a little bit of real estate. You're A, diversified. And for you to lose all of your money over the long term, your money has to go to zero. I mean, I mean, everything has to go to zero, right? Those 10,000 companies have to go to zero. <laughs> real estate has to go to zero. Go, And so for all that go to zero, we're living in like Game of Thrones times, right? That's, you know what I mean? It's not that it's not, um, it can't happen. It's just that if it does happen, like, what are we talking about? We're not even talking about your investment portfolio at that point in time. And so you can diversify that risk down a lot 
uh, of losing money, or you can you can minimize that risk through diversification, and so that is a lot more more manageable of a risk versus risk number one. Like we can't. I mean, what what are we going to do? Stop them from printing money? Like we're not. You're going to like go to war with the government. Good good luck. You know, <laughs> you're going you're going to lose. But what you can do is diversify and make sure that you have in your portfolio assets that will protect your purchasing power loss over time and not have as many assets that will get eaten up by the bear over time. Risk number three, counterparty risk. Now, this is a risk that nobody thinks of, but this is like what happened with Lehman Brothers, right? I mean, Lehman Brothers Brothers went down and there were a lot of companies that, a lot of people that had money with Lehman Brothers that, 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 that lost their money, you know? A lot of people don't realize that um, they they we we look at the financial system and we assume, oh yeah, my money is safe because it's in the bank. Well, but the bank is a counterparty, right? If the bank goes under, okay, yeah, you got FDIC insurance, but that insurance does not cover like when you look at how much money they have actually in the FDIC insurance to cover that, like the money that goes in to cover it. It doesn't cover all the money in the system and that's, that's covered by FDIC insurance, right? And the solution to the problem, when the reason why they print money whenever the finance system starts to break down and they keep doing it is to, to, to make sure that, you know, if banks went under, they'd be like, cool, government will guarantee it. Well, the government, they, they guarantee it through printing money, which makes the value of your money go down. So again, you might look in there and you, you might have a million dollars, but it can only buy you know, a fifth of what it can buy 30 years ago, right? In, in in that example. And so so it's I don't call it a magic trick, you know what I'm saying? But it's it's not as safe and secure as 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 you might think. And then as far as like, you know, when you're looking at the brokers you use, right? The bro- brokerage accounts, they you know, you, you have your Edward Jones account, right? Well, there's something called SIPC insurance and it covers brokerage accounts up to like five hundred thousand dollars if the broker goes down. But if you have more and it goes down, then, you know, maybe you're in trouble. And so the counterparty risk is is very important. And the way you minimize that is you, like, pay attention to the to the broker that you use. Make sure they're in good financial health. They're not doing any crazy risky things. This 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 thing that just happened, the, um, that, that big trade, that billionaire that went from $20 billion to zero in, like, a week, right? I mean, I forget what big bank. But there was like banks that lost billions of dollars on that on that on that trade. The banks didn't go under; he went under. But they were exposed to the counterparty risk that he, you know, that he created. By and I don't want to go too nerd on you, but that was an example of like counterparty risk going bad, right? And they and they and they lost money on on that deal. So counterparty risk is important in investing. And one more insight into into to Bitcoin. I think I think one of the Reasons you're seeing a lot of people gravitate to Bitcoin is Bitcoin is a bearer asset. What is a bearer asset? Meaning you don't need counterparties. Like like if if I had a bar of gold in my backpack and I wanted to pay Steve in gold, like I don't, I don't need counter, I don't need a counterparty. I just pay Steve in gold. I keep the gold. I store the gold. We live in a system where all of our assets are exposed to counterparty risk and it works when the system is stable and people trust it and is working out but when it's shaky people get nervous and so uh, you know if you if you own your own bitcoin i mean yeah there's risk there too because you have to like custody it yourself and not lose your keys and that's 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 a risk but you but you 
take out counter, counterparty risk, right? So that's why a lot of folks are liking Bitcoin. But I personally own it in both, right? So I own some Bitcoin in my brokerage account where I don't custody it in a fund, right? And I don't, I don't think the system is going to blow up, and I don't think that it's going to be the end of the world. So, but but for but for risk management, I'm giving you insight into thinking like. You think about all these things. So, so my Bitcoin, I have some real Bitcoin that, that we hold, that we custody. We have Bitcoin in a brokerage account that's exposed to counterparty risk, right? We make sure that we understand the financials of the financial institutions that we deal with for our money and for clients' money. But those are risks that you want to think through and just not take for granted because, you know, people in Argentina 10 years ago maybe didn't worry about that, but they worry about it today. You know, when you have a falling currency and inflation at 50% plus a year and institutions going down crazily. So those are the three risks, not to scare you into not acting, but it's just, it's, it's just exposing you to, hey, just, you know, be thoughtful. There's no, the safety is an illusion. There's nothing that's ever safe, right? I was talking to somebody earlier and they were like, yeah, Philip, but blah, 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 this stuff is so risky. I'm like, yeah, but if you do nothing, you just leave your money in the bank. If you just leave it in the bank. We know historically the government chops the value of your money in half every 24 years, right? 3% of your inflation. That's historically they've, they've done that. And I just told you it's probably going to get worse at 10% plus a year. So it's going to get worse. So if you do nothing, you're still, you're still risking something. You know, like doing nothing is a risk, right? So what I'm, what I'm trying to expose people to is there's a risk in everything. There's no such thing as no risk, right? You want to just be thoughtful, assess probabilities, be diversified and do everything you can to address the risk so you can sleep peacefully. I, I sleep real peaceful at night because I know that, hey, listen, I've set up my situation to where, you know, outside of chaos and civilization going back to Game of Thrones time period, like, we're good. You know, we're good. And if it goes back, to, and I've been doing Muay Thai so that if it goes back to get Game of Thrones period, I can hold my own. And I got lots of friends with lots of guns and bullets to defend ourselves and I'm learning how to garden right we just talked about that right so risk management last question how do I make passive income from investing this is a common question that I get a lot of people think that hey I can you know I can you know I had somebody say here's an example hey I'm gonna you know I'm gonna give you like a thousand or two thousand bucks can you like go ahead and double that and then give it to our two thousand back and then just compound that and play with that over time. And I was like, uh, I'm probably not the advisor for that. A, because I don't, I don't make any money on that, right? B, that type of trading is a is is not that it's not possible. It's an illusion, right? My deal is there are traders, right? Michael Marcus, Victor Sperandio, people that are in market wizards, where, and and they were in the one percent of people who went into the trading profession that traded for eighty to a hundred hours a week. And actually built an amazing, they, they made those returns and built an amazing life doing just trading. But those people are like, they're like the people where you might say, uh, they were like the Mike Tysons, you know what I mean, of that industry. So Mike Tyson put in the work and became the champ. Floyd Mayweather put in the work and became the champ. And so for you to go say, hey, hey, I want to, I want this advisor to do it for me, or I want to try to. Do, you know, I want to try to make passive income like that from investing in, in stocks and make some extra side income as I'm working. But you're not putting the 80 hours a weekend for years and years and years, and you're not part of the 1%. It's like saying, hey, yeah, I think I'm going to go knock out Mike Tyson. Hmm, good luck. I mean, sure, it's possible. It's just not probable. You know what I mean? 
Like somebody can knock out Mike Tyson. Probably ain't you. You know what I mean? That's just just. And, and so being real about it can help you have more realistic understanding that, that they'll say, but I saw a course of this person and that person. And this. I'm like, listen, these people who are selling courses, I'm not hating on them. They made more money selling courses than investing, right? Because it's, it's easy to trick folks, you know, and make it sound sexy. And I've been approached multiple times about creating a course about investing. And I'm like, I'm not, but people will pay for it. Yeah, but people are, well, people are really asking when they're asking that. They're saying, they're not saying, hey, you know, show me how to do a trade or show me how to do this. What they're saying is, I want to be financially independent, right? I know how to answer that question. But they, they think the answer is, you know, with five hours a week, <laughs> you know, trading their money and becoming a millionaire. That's just not going to happen. Not, not over the long term. Like, there's going to be a lot of people who are just fooled and upset after trying that. And I don't want no part of that. And so what I've seen is the people who are wealthy, right, they create a business or become uh, key people out of business. They make a lot of money. They save a lot of money. And, 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 and A, they probably become, they become wealthy through the business. And then they peel off some of their money from the business and they put it away for the long term in investments based on their risk tolerance time frame and how much they want to invest. And they build more wealth outside of that over the long term. They create passive income over the long term by like investing in a more diversified portfolio, but they get wealthy. They get wealthy off of like just having their money in like one business or two businesses. I mean, that's how you get really, really wealthy, right? Either selling the courses, right? They get wealthy off of selling the courses, not the actual trading, right? Or managing the hedge fund to become a billionaire, not getting crazy returns over that period of time. So just just understand the game. Like, I'm not saying you can't do it, but just think, Okay, am I willing to put in the work to work out Mike Tyson? And am I am I built for this? And if you're not, okay, figure out how do I get to making three, four, five hundred thousand a year, a million dollars a year in a in something that I can do, in a profession I can do, and let me peel off money and invest it responsibly, you know, for the long term. So those are my thoughts for this week. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter, ask underscore Philip uh, with any questions. Any interactions? I don't. I don't. I'm doing less and less on Facebook. Muay Thai is just for my Instagram, but all the financial stuff I'm going to Twitter because I feel like it's it's just it's just believe it or not, it's more peaceful. People are Twitter is smarter. <laughs> you know, my Facebook feed is, you know, not, not it's, it's like for you know it's not, it ain't talking about stuff that makes you think. You know, on Facebook, nothing wrong with that at all. I'm saying. This is stuff, my podcast for making you think. And so I'm going to spend more time on, on Twitter, hanging out with folks that make me think about making money. So that's that. Enjoy your day. One of the biggest planning challenges I see for individuals that work at publicly traded companies are planning around their stock base or equity based compensation. They get stock options, restricted stock, employee stock purchase plans that can majorly affect uh, their tax situation and their balance sheet over time and the decision-making process around what you do with your stock-based compensation can significantly impact your net worth in a positive or, or even a negative way, way over the long term. And so what I offer to potential new clients is to review your stock-based compensation plan and give my opinion on what you should do, what you should think about, how to put together a strategy around that. It's something that I do on an ongoing basis with existing clients, but I'll offer a no-cost 
no obligation one-time consultation on your stock-based compensation plan for anybody who's interested to sign up for a time go to my website stonehillwealthmanagement.com and book a free investment no cost no obligation review stonehillwealthmanagement.com If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to stonehillwealthmanagement.com forward slash talk. That's stonehillwealthmanagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.